Ephesians 4.25 through 5.2. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrance offering, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. That's God's word, and we're grateful. Thanks, Brendan. Brendan is one of our high school students. He did a great job. Thanks for singing with us. Thanks, man. <clears throat> well, do you guys want to hear my very first sermon? Um, no, it's not that I did it with this text. Um, in fact, that's not even fair to say my first sermon. It was a dream I had the night before I did my first sermon. And uh, the sermon that I gave in my dream, in my subconscious state, was five words. And I'm sure that you would rather hear that dream first sermon because it's five words, and I'm going to maybe top out at 5,000 this evening. But my first sermon, my dream sermon, was five words, and in my dream, there was maybe some sort of stress dream before my actual Sunday morning first sermon. Are you thoroughly confused? My very first dream sermon, my first sermon then, was five words, and I, in my dream, walked in front of a group of students, and I was looking very confident and professional, and I put my Bible down. This is so stupid. I'm telling you my dream. Um, I sat my Bible down, and I looked in the eyes of all these students. I looked at them square in the eye. I'm much more confident in dream state than I am in my real life. And I said five words, five words. And in my dream, I, I still remember this. I held up my hand and I said, always, always, always be nice. And that was it. And I just said amen. And that was it. It was five words and they weren't even five different words. Three of them were always. So if I was to keep preaching that sermon, I'd be like, sometimes, no, always. Always? No, always, always, always. That's my first sermon in my dream. That was my nutshell. I was going to go preach something. I don't even remember what I actually preached, but I remember the night before, if I was to summarize everything I wanted to say for a group of high school students in my dream, it would be always, always, always be nice. Always, always, always be nice. That was my nutshell message to impart to a group of students in my dreams. And I thought about this verse all week. And I thought about this list that is going to come across to you like some do's and don'ts in the New Testament. But at the end of our passage this evening, I really think that if Paul were to have just a few words 
to summarize what it means to live life in Christ. And he may just use a handful of these, but if we were to narrow it down to just two verses, I wonder if it would be the verses we're going to wind up looking at this evening after a long list of very practical teaching. How could he summarize it? What would the whole of Christian life look like if not in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 2? The end of our passage we're going to begin with tonight. Follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. And then, if you needed a reason or a motivation, he gives us, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at that. If you gave him five words, he would probably narrow it to, follow God's example and walk. Because he started this whole section that we've been exploring now in the fall of life in Christ, this section that gets into the nitty-gritty, an actual Christian life that can be lived, at the beginning of chapter 4 that says, I urge you to walk in a way that's worthy. The thing about Christianity If it were this simple to simply walk in the way of love or to follow God's example, it would be this easy, right? Well, I can just walk in the way of love. And I could just keep walking knowing that I'm loved by God as a dearly loved child. I could follow God's example by walking in the way of love. Boy, that would be really simple. Just as always, always, always be nice would be simple except for one thing. And it's the same thing that makes following God's example and walking in the way of love difficult. Here's the problem. If this is one of Paul's attempts to summarize the lived Christian life, the life in Christ, to follow God's example and walk in the way of love, if you are in Christ, what Paul has said thus far is, You are a part of the body of Christ. Ah, it'd be easier to be nice if I didn't have to see anybody. It'd be easier to walk in the way of love if I didn't have to walk past all these mongrels that I call my brothers and sisters in the church. No offense, mongrels. It's all well and good when Christianity is something we limit to something we believe. But the idea is Christianity is not something that's theoretical. Christianity becomes practical. And Christianity becomes practical when you live it out in the community. So if we are in Christ, that means we're a part of the body of Christ. And if we're part of the body of Christ, that means there's many other members that we belong to. And this community makes us walk in the way of love in a way that is not ordinary to us. It takes a renovation of our heart, which is what the whole first part of Ephesians means. This is your life in Christ. You've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You've been saved in Christ when you were dead. You've been made alive in Christ. It's all this big, beautiful theory. And then he says, now here's how you actually live it out. These truths about our life in Christ are not primarily something that are to be believed. Watch. They're something that are to be lived. 
follow God's example. Well, what does God's example look like? Well, it looks like Jesus who became flesh, blood, man, and walked in the way of love. So we get to do that in his steps, following God's example, the father who gave the son and the son who gave his life and showed us how to live. But he doesn't leave it up to simply us. We follow his example and the power he's given us in the Holy Spirit. And we also do it within his community. You with me? We follow God's example by his power and by his community. But we need that renovation of the heart, which was the first part of this little chunk, which I called living in Christ part one, which is last week. And that was really if you're going to live in Christ, if it's going to be a lived Christian life, you've got to make a clean break with your old way of life. You can't go walking in new shoes until you take the old shoes off. You can't walk in the way of love if you're still walking in the way of impurity and morality and all the ways that are clinging back to your old way of life. You've got to take those shoes off in order to walk in this life in Christ. Now tonight, he's going to say, if you want to walk in the way of love, you're going to bump into other people. Here's how you do that. And so he's going to give a list of four exhortations. Exhortation is a fancy word that basically is an urging and it's some kind of biblical or spiritual truth. I'm exhorting you to do this. And he's going to give four exhortations for our life together as we walk in love by following God's example in his power and in his community. Four examples. But it's not just a here's a list of do's. He's going to tell us each step of the way, here's why. Put off this way, do that, here's why. Here's why. It's not just because I said so, which so many people think Christianity is about. He's going to say do this and here's why. Because if you walk in the way of love, you find that it's the way we were always made to walk. When we are in Christ. So we're going to explore these four exhortations. Then in verse 30, there's this interlude about the Holy Spirit, who is the power at work, propelling us as we walk into this way of love. And then we're going to end at the right before that nutshell of Christianity that we started our time with. Right before that, he's going to say again, put off a heart of bitterness. And then he's going to say, put on a heart that is tender. And pointed out toward others. Because that Holy Spirit is the power that's renovating us. In order that we can actually walk and live the Christian life in our bodies. Because so much of the Christian life has been reduced to what we believe. But Christianity is something that's meant to be lived. And it's not meant to be lived in isolation. It's meant to be lived in community. Because if you're in Christ, there is no other place to be but in Christ's body, the church, and it gets messy. Let me tell you. Let Paul tell you. Look with me in chapter 4. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage, beginning in verse 25. These are the exhortations, the rules of the road along the way as we follow this way of love in his power and in his community. Look with me in 425. Therefore, all of this stuff that I told you about putting off your old way of life. Okay, you done that? Great. That's only part of the job. Therefore, each of you must also put off falsehood. Oh, okay. 
Basically, put off lying and speak truthfully to your neighbor. So put off lying and put on truth-telling. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. What neighbor is he talking about? It's not just the guy that you live next to. He's quoting a passage in Zechariah. That's right, Zechariah 8, 16. We don't give Zechariah much pub, and we maybe ought to. So if you're taking notes, write down Zechariah 8, 16, and he's quoting a command that God gave God's people. Hey, don't lie to each other. Be honest with one another. This is how my community ought to live. Follow my example, because could you imagine Yahweh or the God revealed in Jesus to Israel or to his church when we gather to worship up there or down here snickering at us? Man, did you hear David playing those drums, dude? Man, that was bad. No offense, man. I love you. But could you imagine if God was making fun of you? Could you imagine if he was telling errors? Could you imagine if he was telling false things or lies could you imagine if he was not someone that's reliable well how could you imagine a community that is well I can because I see it so often because we're imperfect people that struggle to follow the example so Paul reminds another community that struggles to follow this example to put off this falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor trust is foundational to our community And so you're thinking, well, I don't really lie. But I think what happens sometimes is we withhold information. And sometimes we do out and out lie. Why? To make ourselves look better. What happens when we make ourselves look better? We're trying to get a one-up on a person that we may unintentionally try to make look worse. One of the funny stories is about, as we think also of withholding information, I think about Roman Popov, who's our pastor and brother in Russia, who will actually be visiting with us here for a week in October. Uh, he's going to go preach at a church in Sacramento. There's tons of Russians in Sacramento. And uh, they asked him to come down and preach in Sacramento. And he said, yes, but you will buy me a ticket to Dallas, and I will spend a week in Dallas first. I must see my church in Dallas. That's how he says, church. Ramon, if you're listening, thanks for listening, but also, dude, that's how you say church. Um, Ramon said one of the biggest sources of culture shock for him was when he came into the States and he saw all these people walking up to him, shaking his hand and saying, hey, man, how are you? And he would say, oh, that was a long flight. I am so tired. I'm ready to be home. I've just really been exhausted. And... Um, You know, I'm missing my family, and I'm thinking about things that are going on in my church. And uh, then he begins to see, he says, you know, when he was doing this the first several times, the American that asked him the question looked very, very confused. And he had to learn after some time that when Americans are walking past you and say, hey, how are you? They don't stop. That's a synonym for hello, and they just keep walking. Or in a church, hey, how are you? He caught on very quickly to the American Christians who would shake a hand and say, I'm doing great, thank you. And it's this place of putting off falsehood, yes, is about not lying. Christians should not lie. But it's also this sense that if we belong to one another, can we give and trust to give our whole selves, which is his motivation here. Why should we not lie? Well, here's the why. For we are all members of one body. 
And the more we lie, the more that the toe says, I'm okay, thanks, I can bear all this weight on my own, the more the toe is saying that, the more the leg is continuing not to encourage and support and help. And then all of a sudden, the whole body begins to suffer. And so it's an encouragement. I want to encourage, as I think about people in our church, man, can we just be honest with another, with one another? Be truthful to one another. Not just in the sense of not lying, but the way of community and the way of love is trusting and being honest. Or as we looked at a couple weeks ago, speaking truth in love. Truthing. Being truth in love. Because when a community does that in love and walks in the way of love, the reason you wanted to lie in the first place for being afraid Well, that perfect love, man, can cast out that fear and you can find yourself being able to know and be known. And so this is not just some list of Christian do and don't. This is foundational to God's people. It was then in Zechariah. It is now in Ephesians. And 1 Peter 3, which quotes Isaiah 53, when Jesus himself as our example, he said there was no sin in him and neither was deceit found in his mouth. For, th- for three years when Jesus was revealing in his public ministry who God is, how God speaks, what God is perfectly like, he did not lie. He did not give half-truths. He gave whole truths. Sometimes those truths hurt, but there is no deceit, and we ought to follow that example. So then he moves on to that second exhortation that's so foundational to walk in the way of love together. What does it say in verse 26? Look with me. In your anger, do not sin. This is another quotation if you're taking notes, right? Psalm 4, 4. In your anger, do not sin. Now, is it okay to be angry? Now, you could say, well, this verse is just saying in your anger, so when you're angry, because it's part of the human condition. I would say that it is okay to be angry because sometimes you cannot help but be angry. It is part of your emotions. Just any more like you can't help being sad sometimes. I cannot tell you how to feel. Anytime somebody says, hey man, don't feel bad, but let me tell you, you stink and I hate you. Don't feel mad. Well, dude, wait a minute, man. I'm going to feel how I feel. I can think differently about something. I can choose to think that you're not just a jerk and I love you and I'm going to forgive you. But how I feel at this moment is pretty angry. So the trick there is, when you're angry, it's part of the human condition, do not sin. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, and so what does he say here? Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, do you feel angry, set a timer, and say, dang, dude, it's 7.30, and now the sun's like setting at 8, and man, I've got a lot of anger, I've got to get out. Let me be a legalist and say, whoops. I've got to get all this frustration out before the sun goes down. Now, the issue here is, would you catch it quickly? Because emotions hit. But emotions are things that, like wild horses, sometimes need to be reined in. The issue is an anger that's kept 
and nursed. And when one son goes down and you wake up angry and you're barking at everybody in your house and you're barking at everybody at work and you're still nursing that anger for another night, another night, another night, what happens is the longer you nurse that, the more it gives way to all sorts of destructive and disruptive ways of your relationship. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Catch it quickly. Don't let it fester. Why? Look at verse 27. What happens when you let night after night go? Do not give the devil a foothold. Don't let the sun go down and don't give the devil a foothold. What happens when you nurse anger? When you keep it as your ugly little fierce pet, you become an angry person. Not just an angry person. You see, let's skip down now to verse 31. What happens when the devil gets a foothold? He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander brawling is like shouting what happens when you're already operating at a place of near boiling one interaction that could be pretty mild when you're already nursing that anger when you're a bitter person and that boiling what happens to water that is just quite there you may take it off for a minute but when you put it back it's going to boil back up if you're operating at a place of just under boiling when somebody hits you and and somebody offends you that anger is going to spill out you're going to be shouting you're going to be brawling the anger that was once watch an internal emotion when nursed when not put down to bed when you are becomes a way of life that disrupts external relationships when the devil has a foothold it's so fascinating that of all the things he's talking about sex in the next chapter he talked about immorality in the last section but what he says gives the devil a foothold and what is so destructive is so often our anger and our bitterness because it is such a wild human emotion and so what happens when it gets unchecked is when you don't put off all that bitterness, that festering anger, that rage and brawling and slander, which is finally talking and destroying a community, because you know what slander is in verse 31? Slander is when you go to somebody else to tell about what a you-know-what so-and-so is within that community. And now all of a sudden, you're dragging other people into that cycle of bitterness and violence in your emotional heart place. That's why we've got to put off that bitter heart. And we do that by stopping it where it starts. You can let that thing hit, but in your anger, do not sin. The formula for sinful anger is time plus intensity. If you let that intensity hit and you don't resolve in yourself and in your heart, if you can't resolve with that other person, you let that thing go, you're talking about sinful anger. Why then? Well, it's not to give the devil a foothold because the Spirit brings unity. And what happens with the devil is he wants to create all kinds of disunity with us as we're trying to walk together as members of Christ's body in love. We need to put that off. That's that second exhortation and the why. Could you imagine Jesus raging out at somebody and telling them off? Oh, well, you know, when he went into that temple, man, he was turning over them tables. Yeah, 
So was he cussing at other people and raging out on them? Or was he trying to make a statement of what they've turned God's house in to be? Could you imagine him waking up furious and barking at Peter and John? I can imagine Jesus getting angry, but I cannot imagine him taking it out and putting all that fire onto someone else, and nor should we in our church. So then the third exhortation after lying in anger is anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. So what's the antidote to not stealing? But must work doing something useful with their own hands. So this is that change that's turning a thief into a philanthropist. And you know who I think of? Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector that got a nice little chunk off the top. When Jesus came to him, told him about the kingdom, showed him the kingdom, what did Zacchaeus do? Somewhere in the fray, his heart was changed. He said, you know what? Everything I've stolen, I'm going to give back fourfold. That's an incredible example of what it looks like to live out the kingdom by his power and to others. Stealing is something that's taking selfishly, and he's saying, put that off and put on giving generously. This is powerful because you know who gave generously? Can I skip back down to chapter 5 again? Or could we just look up here at John 3.16? For God so loved the world, what? That he gave. John will say also in his first epistle in chapter 4, this is love. God gave his only son. And so how inconsistent then is people stealing? Or watch, if you're not, if you, well, I don't really lie. I just maybe withhold the truth. Well, I don't really steal. I just withhold what God has given. Well, I don't really steal. I just don't want to, you know, Take what I've worked and what I've made and give it to people in need. Well, here's the why. That these people may have something to share with those in need. The people who have made such a life of stealing or hoarding should work and then turn that work into giving. Giving to those in need. This is a community building growth place. Jesus often touches us in the places that are most unlike him, doesn't he? What is that place of unlikeness that you just feel this nagging sense that I'll never get over that? I'll never be able to do that. That is exactly where Jesus wants to come into our lives and point that out. The reason we're thinking about it is that in his kindness, God may lead us to turn from that and repent. And it's so funny, I, I don't know why I stopped here and not somewhere else, but when I think about giving generously, here's why I think maybe about this, where Jesus wants to touch us and make us more into his image. Because when I think about taking and hoarding and withholding, I think so much that we think that buys our freedom. Well, I have this, and therefore I'm safe. I have this in my account. I have this vehicle. I have this house. Therefore, I'm safe. And what happens so subtly and so carefully is we think we're living in freedom because we don't have to worry about the roof over our head. But month after month after month, we find that it's not enough. 
And we find ourselves, when we finally make a point of saying, you know what, this person is in need. And I may not have much, but I've got something. And I need to bless that person in the name of Jesus for his sake and his kingdom. I guarantee you you'll find more freedom in that than you ever would in a huge bank account. That's your safety net. Because when your safety net's gone, you know who's still there? Jesus and the community that is also called to meet your needs when you need it. We have a whole account in our church for benevolence. And Bud and I are so fast and loose with that, it's not even funny. Poor Bud. Hey, man, let's just go. Hey, dude, hey, we need to give this. We need to give this. We need to give this. And Bud's like, hey, I'm thinking we need to give this. We don't have much as a church. We have one full-time staff person. We don't have much because we're not fixing the baptistry every time it's breaking. But what we have, we want to give. And what we're going to talk about in Advent this year is I can't get up here and preach about freedom in Christ by giving sacrificially just like God and following his example if we're not willing as a church to do that. So this Advent, I don't want to raise a $25,000 missions budget. I want to say, you know what? We shouldn't have to raise a dadgum missions budget. If we talk about being a church on mission and a missional church, we need to give in faith as a church and say, you know what? We could be doing a lot more for the kingdom if we all did what we are called to do together. And so it's not about raising $25,000, patting ourselves on the back and saying, hey, that's it. It's a lifestyle of freedom in Christ, not to do because Paul said to do it, but a motivation to say, when your heart is changed and renovated, you can be a thief that becomes a philanthropist. What a wild reversal that is. And it's a way of heart and living by the Spirit of God that is so flesh and bones and practical, it's not even funny. It is so unholy as even the greenbacks and cash But God can take those things and meet needs and bless others and do incredible kingdom work. And so that was the third exhortation, and he moves on to a very practical and hard-hitting one. I talked about that place where Jesus wants to touch that is unlike him, where he may shine a light on lovingly, unlike him. This is my place. A lot of my time as a young man was spent in unwholesome talk. Let's look at what Paul says in that fourth exhortation there in verse, what is it, 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That word unwholesome is like rotten, putrid, or filthy. It's gross. And when Jesus says, you know, out of your heart your mouth speaks, when unwholesome talk is coming out of your heart, out of your mouth, You've got some nasty, junky, filthy fruit that's being born out of that place. So put off that unwholesome or filthy talk. We should have a gag reflex as Christians when these words come up. And I want to tell you something. I'm going to confess to you part of my anger that I'm trying to put down. We talked about earlier. Sometimes when I get frustrated, that is where my unwholesome talk that's coming out of a place of my heart of anger and emotions, man, you're lucky you're not around when I step on something in my bare feet or stub my toe or slam the door in my hand. Your pastor lately has had a problem with not guarding my words. And in our church, sometimes we think it's cool because, hey, we're all Christians and brothers and sisters that we may drop a little curse word here and a cuss word there because we're hip and cool and whatever. 
And I'm not trying to micromanage your life, but I'm saying in my heart, that's some place where Jesus has pointed out and said, man, you don't know who else is listening. You know, you don't know who else you may be turning off. We should have a gag reflex when these kinds of things come out. This unwholesome joking, like I'm still in the locker room of eighth grade at Austin Middle School. These kinds of things are not the mature way of Christ. And so what's the antidote to that? What's the motivation to that? Put off that unwholesome talk, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So it's not just filthy things because I want to be some kind of legalistic pastor to say, quit your cussing. But the antidote to this is sometimes that can turn people off. What should we say instead? Those words of encouragement that build people up. So with this, the motivation then is if you say things that are helpful for building others up according to their needs, it may benefit those who listen. This is so common sense. The Bible knows so much of the power of words. If you don't believe me, read Proverbs, read James. They know so much the power of the tongue to build up or to tear down. Not just gossip or slander, but man, the power to build people up. Are you sensitive to people in our community? When they say that thing that's just tinged with a little bit of, man, I'm not myself lately. Man, I'm feeling on the outs lately. Are your ears sensitive to the people in your community? That is a perfect opportunity to follow the Spirit's leading, to follow the example of Jesus who built up in the imagination of all humanity the way of love that is self-sacrificial and giving. Jesus' words and power proclaiming the good news that God is for you, not against you. The words the Father said to the Son, you are my beloved. When somewhere lost in our hearts, we had this sense that we were a long way from home and God was displeased with us. What a gift for those hearing at Jesus' baptism. This is the beloved Son with whom God is pleased And then for Jesus to come to his disciples in the intimacy of that supper and say, I call you friends and I have loved you. Late have I loved you to the end and I will be with you. Could we follow Jesus' example, follow the Spirit's leading and hear those people and build them up in encouragement? You know, a a couple weeks ago, we were talking about spiritual gifts, and at the beginning of chapter 4, I think in verse 7, it said that Christ gave us grace, or gave us ministry. The way that this uh, reads, so I'm told, because I'm not a great Greek scholar, is that, that it may give grace to someone else. Would we be a church that gives grace along the way of love by the Spirit's power? Speaking of that spirit, after those four exhortations, in verse 30, there's that little interlude. That is the behind-the-scenes look at all of these things. You're not just supposed to go out in your own power. This is not a self-help book, okay? The Bible is not a treasure trove of principles and maxims to your life, right? It's it's so much more than that. The Bible is not self-help. There is something going on and Paul tips back the curtain and says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There is a sense here that the Holy Spirit, the shy person of the Trinity, is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not an it 
The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a personal being indwelling us, pulling us along. And we know it's not an it because it can be, he can be, forgive me, grieved. The Holy Spirit is so quietly and unobtrusively many times at work in your heart. But we just don't practice what it looks like. I'll tell you one way you can practice it. We've talked about it before in this church. I read this in a book by Robert Mulholland called An Invitation to a Journey. And he says that spiritual formation is the process of becoming more like Christ, but watch, for the sake of others. Because he understands that the way of love is marked with all our brothers and sisters in Christ's body, just like we are. And so he says, if you want a good litmus test for the quiet and unobtrusive work of the Holy Spirit in your life, ask someone close to you this question. Am I more loving than I was a year ago? Am I more compassionate now than I was a year ago? Am I more patient now than I was a year ago? Am I more self-controlled now than I was a year ago? These are fruits of the Spirit that are quietly working out for the sake of others. Many church traditions see the Holy Spirit as this power, and certainly He is that. Yes, certainly there is power in the Holy Spirit, manifested in so many parts and places and corners of this globe. But in our church, you're not going to find many people who are praying in tongues or these charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that that means that they're not around. I do think that God gives some people these gifts. I think that many times in these churches they're misappropriated and misused and they become a cultural thing. But I do believe that there's not a biblical argument that's really convinced me that these things have ceased. But I think more often than not, in our circle in particular, the Holy Spirit is not going to force Himself on you. He's not going to steamroll you into the image of Christ. Rather, every day nudging you gently more and more would we practice seeing the Holy Spirit at work. This evening we said, you know, look back at your day. This is what we're doing in the school of prayer class. We're trying to train ourselves to notice those places where the Holy Spirit is nudging us, leading us, to, to not to be truthful to somebody, to not let the sun go down on our anger, and to give so many ways the Spirit is calling us and we grieve the Spirit of God when we miss those. So would we practice those ways in which the Spirit of God is at work and say thank you and also would you and then also forgive me for those places I've been out of step with you. This is lived Christianity. The Holy Spirit of God working gradually, patiently within you. And the Holy Spirit, you see... We've been sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit and the seal, many of you may know, is, is an old way of saying it's marking out this regal way of who you belong to and what it's for. A seal is something that shows us that if we've been marked by God's own person, the Holy Spirit within us, that we are God's. If the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, people should walk in and say, I know who these guys belong to, that God revealed in Jesus. It must be the Holy Spirit working in them. I know that seal. They look like father, like son, like daughter. And so we see that it marks out who we are. So then again, why would we walk in these ways of lying, of anger, of immorality, of all these things we're told to put off? 
And we're sealed for the day of redemption. We're sealed not just because this is who we are. We're sealed for what? Redemption. It's a promise that God will do what he said he'd do. And that is give you life abundantly. You'll transition out of this life of lived Christianity in our bodies into a body that's imperishable, that is just like Jesus, but so much like us because we've been renewed fully, finally, at the end of the age when Christ comes and his kingdom will be in fullness and we won't have to pretend we can see face to face. We won't have to have faith. We can see face to face. We're sealed for that day. He's going to get us there to the end, no matter how many valleys we go through. So we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We've got to look like a Spirit of God church. And so that looks like in these last kind of ways where the Holy Spirit is trying to renovate our heart. He says in verse 31 as we near the end, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. We talked about so much of that earlier. And I think about bitterness and I think about hot tea. I'm a coffee drinker in the morning and I become a hot tea drinker in the evening. And I've had to learn that you can't leave the tea bag in forever because what happens? It gets bitter. And this is that way we were talking about earlier. When you let these things fester, when you keep pushing down the Spirit of God, when you keep trying to walk off the way of love, you, your heart becomes a bitter heart that spills out into these other people. And I think about all this bitterness. Maybe it's a progression that leads to rage and anger, brawling and slander, and then every form of malice, which is that despicable, conniving way to inflict vengeance or harm on somebody. That is so anti-Christ. I think about the tea that's been sat too long, and I think about some bitter people we know, and I wonder how much of that bitterness, that bitter old man, right? The, that archetype, that character, that bitter old man. I wonder how much of it started when we were just venting because we were frustrated. And I think about how many of the relationships in my family and your family where people haven't talked to one another in 10 or 15 years, they may have forgotten all about what it was, but they've had a heart of bitterness that has left them so far down the road that years later, it's hard to come back. So that's one of those places where in your marriage, in your friendships, in your family, would you resign yourself to not grieve the Holy Spirit, but let the Holy Spirit move you toward reconciliation? And reconciliation involves two people, two parties. So where that's not possible, the first place is to get rid of all bitterness the second it enters your heart. To purge it out, to pray for those who persecute you, and to love your enemies as yourself. Is that something that you can do on your own? Absolutely not. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let Him move you to the cross and see Jesus. The heart that's bitter is turned in on itself and you want to nurse that. Would you commit in your marriage to let bitterness go the second it starts to creep in? Take that tea bag out, throw it away. It's no good. It'll be a nasty cup of tea and your marriage will suffer. And not just your marriage, it's going to spiral out to everyone else in this community and others that are a part of it, loving you and urging you not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but to put on instead what? Look at verse 32. Be kind then and compassionate. That word there is tender-hearted. Where bitterness is a heart turned in, be kind and let your heart be turned out. Let it be tender-hearted, compassionate to one another. And here's the trick, forgiving one another. 
If reconciliation is between two parties and that may not be feasible because it takes two to tango, you know what you can do is forgive others. Forgiving others is something that is practiced in your heart as you take them to the Lord. You commit to see them as a child of God in the image of God. Listen. And you surrender them to Jesus. And you say, Father, forgive them. And you think back to the Lord's Prayer where Jesus said, when you pray, say, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against you. And after that passage in Matthew, there is this mysterious sense that if you are not forgiving others, you're not walking in that way of love. You're not walking and following God's example who forgave a world who crucified His Son, Jesus. When you're not walking in that, then why should you be forgiven? I don't say that to scare you because if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Look at Colossians 2. Matter of fact, why don't you read Colossians 3? Because it's basically word for word what we're looking at tonight. Along with the lying and anger and the whole deal. It's like a companion piece. But look at Colossians 3 and also look at Colossians 2 and remember that he's nailed all that to the cross. So the motivation there, why should we forgive each other? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Put on that tender heart turned outward and be quick to forgive and like God, slow to anger, right? Compassionate and abounding in love. So above all, we circle back around to where we started. After all those exhortations, it's not just do this and here's why. All these exhortations are that we follow God's example as dearly loved children. Why do we follow God's example? Because we're His. And we follow God's example because Father knows best. And the way of life and community on the way of love is so much more freeing. It's so much more like we're made to be because God has given us life and breath and He's made us His sons and daughters. And if we walk in the way of love, here's the final why. Just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's Leviticus language. When you'd put a burnt offering, it would consume it all. And the Leviticus uh, text would say that it would be a pleasing aroma to God. It would please Him. Because He's seeing the way of life and love that He Himself has shown the world and would show the world finally, fully, in Christ Jesus. Our life in Christ is something to be lived, something to be followed. And we do that in His power, not on ourselves. And we do that in His community. Because growth happens, right? When we actually have places of meeting with other people. You can't just say, always, always, always be nice. And say, yes, I've got that in theory. God will bring you to a place where you will have the opportunity to be nice. Oh, no, no lying. Be truthful. Got it. Well, the primary way of being formed into the image of Christ is in Christ's body. He's going to bring you to places of unlikeness where you're going to be asked to follow that power in this community. And you will find what it means to live this life, not in theory, but in reality. But we need His grace. We need His help because walking in the way of love is a continuous reality. It's not a one and done. 
It is a continuous reality, and it's what we are called to in the name and power of Jesus. So let's pray and remember the sacrifice that motivates us to walk in the way of love. Jesus, you said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We pray that when we come to you, we would not see a list of do's and don'ts, but we would see a way of freedom on the other side of the cross. Because when you invite us to come to me, we find that there's a cross, rugged, rough, and hard, meeting us. And somewhere in the rest is a denying of ourselves for the sake of you and the world. And in some crazy twist, we find that it is not the loss of freedom, but we find that it's true freedom. And so, Lord, when we come to you, we would find rest, even in the cross, knowing that you have done what we could not, and you've empowered us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And when we come to you, and we come to these verses where you're encouraging us through the Holy Spirit to live out this reality, we pray that we would do so with a yoke that is easy, and a burden that is light because we're walking the way of love with you, our shepherd king. So we commit ourselves and our community to you, Jesus, because your father gave you, you gave yourself, and the Holy Spirit was given that we may live for you. Amen. Let's remember the sacrifice of Jesus and remember that we take it together.